And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people from the people or taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you, will not, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera's when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes to you and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she softly went to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. 
And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning where we can gather together as your people to hear your word and to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear your word. Help us to honor you with our thoughts and with our actions. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a pretty intense story from the Old Testament. It has a lot to say to us, though. And if you notice in it, there's, it's got this kind of idea of these people who come and deliver Israel. In our culture of today, we have a real fascination with superheroes. We live in the age of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right? This, just to show you how fascinated people are, I did a little bit of research on you know, how long the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been around. It's been around for 10 years now, since 2008 is when it launched. It's spawned 20 movies in that time. All of them box office smashes, and it's got another 12 in production. That tells you something about how our culture feels about superheroes. There's another movie that came out this year, The Incredible Soup. It's an animated superhero movie, and it was released 14 years after the original movie came out. Earlier this week, that sequel broke the record for the highest grossing animated movie of all time in North America, crossing the 500 million mark. Now, it's not always go to be Frozen worldwide, right? Everyone loves Frozen all around the world. But even that, features this ice princess who has these powers that kind of resemble a superhero. This isn't just a temporary fad. Superheroes have captured the love of people around the world for years and years. In fact, April 18th, earlier this year, was the 80th anniversary of Superman, of his debut in the comic books. And even beyond Superman, even beyond just this last few generations here in America, the story of people accomplishing heroic feats goes back really as long as humans have been telling stories. The ancients wrote of people like Hercules and Achilles, these men who possessed great power and accomplished great heroic feats. So from Hercules all the way to the Avengers, <laughs> these heroes, they usually have a few things in common. One, they tend to defeat the forces of evil. Two, they keep people safe from danger. So they're deliverers. They deliver people from all kinds of evil that would seek to do them harm. So when people are in a city and there's a hero there, they can rest assured that when danger comes, that hero will come and keep them safe. In the book of Judges, where our story comes from this morning, we see Israel in the constant need of a hero. Israel is frequently doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, he gives them into the hand of an oppressor. Then they cry out for deliverance. And then God raises up a judge, and that judge comes and heroically saves them. At least the first few times, that's what happens. As the book of Judges progresses, we see that these heroic judges become less and less heroic. Sometimes there's confusion as to who the judge even is. And even worse, there can be confusion as to whether the judge is even there to help Israel or not. 
And that's the case in our text this morning. There's a lot of confusion as to what's going on with the judge. So in light of this, I've structured this sermon into three points, which you'll see there on the, the insert, to help us look at this text to see what it teaches us. So first, we see the need for a hero. And then second, we see that there are some hero candidates in this text. And then third, we find a real hero in the text. So the need for a hero, some hero candidates, and the real hero. So first, we see Israel has a need for a hero. At the beginning of this story, we see Jabin. He's the king of Canaan. And Sisera, he's the commander of Jabin's army. Now, Sisera has been around for 20 years oppressing the people of Israel. We're looking at Judges 4, but Judges 5 is a song that kind of goes along with this story, which we didn't read because that's a lot of text. Um, But the song in chapter 5 gives us a little bit of insight into the kind of oppressor that Sisera was. He was the kind of man who would not be satisfied simply defeating his enemies. Instead, he would slaughter them and pillage their belongings and take advantage of their women. As verse 3 says, he was nothing short of a very, very, very cruel oppressor. So not only was Sisera cruel, but he was also very powerful. We see in verse 3 that he had 900 chariots of iron. Now that might not sound like us, like a big, huge force to us today. But Israel had this landscape. It was both hilly in some areas, and then there were these vast plains in other areas. And earlier in Judges, we see the tribe of Judah. They were supposed to drive out the Canaanites from the land. They were supposed to drive the Canaanites out of these areas. And they had no problem with the hilly areas because they they were good in combat. God was on their side, right? But when they get down to the plains and they have to face these chariots of iron, the superior military technology of the Canaanites, they just couldn't take them out. The Canaanites had unquestioned superiority in any flat areas like the plains. So when we get to Judges 4, we see that not only are the Canaanites still in the plains, but their military commander, Sisera, is using his superior military technology. He's using those chariots to go and oppress the people of Israel. These chariots were not exactly like what we would think of as tanks, but they were pretty close. They were killing machines. They were fast-moving, and foot soldiers would have just been completely overwhelmed by them. If there were even a few of them, it would have been a very strong force, much less 900 led by this vicious commander. So all of this to say, all those details to say this, Israel knew that running into Jabin and Sisera and those chariots and that army in those plains meant certain death. It was death and destruction. That's what Sisera and his army represented to Israel. But as we see in the beginning of our story, After 20 years of oppression, think about that, they've been being oppressed for 20 years and they finally call out to the Lord for deliverance. So, now, we must see who the Lord sends to deliver them. And that leads to our second point this morning, where the Lord sends some hero candidates. So in verse 4, we meet Deborah. The text identifies her as one who's judging Israel. 
So from the way it sounds, you know, the book is called Judges. It says that she's judging Israel. So from the way it sounds, we might think right off the bat that she's the one who will go on and deliver Israel. After all, right after the text mentions Sisera and his oppression, it's like, now Deborah. You know, so we think, okay, Deborah's going to be the one who rises up and takes Sisera and his army out. But there are a few things that make it clear from the very beginning of this story that Deborah is not the hero. In the earlier stories of the judges, Othniel and Ehud, who come right before Deborah, the text says, And the Lord raised up a deliverer, and then goes on to describe Ehud and Othniel. But in this story with Deborah, we don't get that formula. We just get now Deborah, who was judging Israel at the time. There's a strong and very intentional ambiguity about Deborah's role as a judge. And it's, it's not something that's just a side note in the text. It's, it's intentional. It's supposed to be there. So the author draws our attention to this. So is she a judge who's going to deliver the people of Israel? The text explicitly calls her a judge, but like I said, she doesn't receive that formula of the judges before her. Further, her actions show that she's not really the hero of the story. She's not really the judge. First, she calls out someone else to go and lead the army before the Canaanites. And then she disappears halfway through the story. She doesn't go fight any battles. She just goes and tells Barak, look, the Lord's before you. And then Barak goes and does everything. You don't hear from Deborah again. Even more than this, later in Scripture, Barak is the one who gets mentioned as kind of the hero, as the one who delivered Israel from these people. Not Deborah. But then we look at this at the same time. She's clearly involved in the overall deliverance of Israel. She's a prophet. She guides Barak. She even shows a measure of authority over him when she rebukes him as a prophetess. And there's even more ambiguity around Deborah's role. One of the things you might mention is, or you might notice at the very beginning of the text, is it, it stresses Deborah's femininity. It heaps word after word behind one another. It says Deborah. Okay, so Deborah's a feminine name. Then it goes a prophetess, the wife of Lapido. And then in Hebrew, we don't really see this in English because it's not proper grammar, but it adds another feminine definite article right after that. So it basically reads Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapido. She was judging Israel at the time. So it's really saying, okay, we recognize this judge is a woman. Now, much has been made about this in broader circles, about Deborah being in a leadership position in Israel as a woman, and this was pretty much unheard of in Israel and the surrounding nations at the time. Now, it goes beyond the scope of the sermon to deal with these things at length, but suffice it to say, without getting into any of those other issues, the text is really emphasizing her womanhood here to show that this is a peculiar, unexpected thing at this point in Israel's history. And that's something that this passage does frequently. It takes the kind of social norms, the expected things that Israel and the nations around them would have expected to happen. And it just takes them and flips them on their head. And that's part of the story. It does it here with Deborah, and it does it with characters later on, and we'll see that as we go. But we see this example here, Deborah, the woman, the one who 
by all conventions of the day, would have been very strange for her to be in a leadership position. She goes and she rebukes this military leader, Barak. And he won't even go out to battle unless she goes with him. And yet, as we see the story going on, we do see Deborah's not the one who does the delivering. So she is not the hero of this story, though she clearly has an important role. All right, so if Deborah isn't the hero, what about Barak? He's the next figure we come and see. As the story goes, we find out that he goes out, he defeats Sisera's army. It's swift, decisive, almost complete. But Sisera, the vicious commander who everyone has been oppressed by, he gets away from Barak. And it's interesting that Deborah told him this would happen. Right? When Deborah summons Barak, she tells him that God goes out before him and that God will deliver Sisera and his army into the hands of Barak. And given Deborah's status as this prophetess, given God's track record in Israel, there really shouldn't have been any hesitation on Barak's part here. And yet there is, and not only is there hesitation, but Barak, kind of weirdly here, places a condition on his own obedience to the Lord's direct command from the mouth of the prophet. Okay, his response to Deborah, who just gives him the word of the Lord, is this. If you don't come, I'm not going to go. Like, there is no chance I'm going unless you're coming with me. Okay, so think about this. Think about this for a second. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth comes to you and he says, go do this. And I promise you, I will give everything necessary to you to carry it out. And I will deliver your enemies into your hands and there won't be any question. And on top of that, just for doing this, you will get a great reward. You will get great honor. And Barak's response to God is, I'm not sure that I believe you. <laughs> I'm going to need another sign for this, because this sounds a little crazy to me, and I need another sign. So this prophet that you said this to, she needs to come with me. And when we look at this story, it seems a bit ridiculous to us. We can picture ourselves in this situation, right? We're like, okay, prophet of God, we know what God's done in Israel. Of course, of course we would go, right? It's easy to sit here, and judge Barak and see him as not as faithful as he should have been. But how often do we do the same thing that Barak did? Okay, now you might be saying, okay, Jared, I don't have a prophet sitting here and speaking God's words to me, <laughs> right? I'm, someone's not coming into my house or I'm not meeting with someone and they're saying, okay, you're supposed to do this and then God will take care of you, right? We don't have someone doing that. And that might be the case, but you do have the Word of God. You have the written Word of God in Scripture, and that tells you what to do. How often do we find ourselves in a place where we know what God says on something? We know what God says on some issue. We know what God says on some sin. And yet, instead of just doing what we're supposed to do, instead of following Scripture, being obedient, we end up doing some kind of bargaining with God. I remember when I was a teenager and I would be tempted and I would go, you know, God, if you would just, if you would just send me a sign, 
I wouldn't do this. <laughs> right? He would just, you know, and even, even with positive things, I would go, you know, God, I have this friend, and, you know, they really, they need some help. And, you know, I'm kind of at home, and I don't have anything else going on, but I need you, I need you to send me a sign so that I know that that's the right thing to do. <laughs> right? How many times do we face some temptation? Or we know that there's something that we should do, that Scripture commands us to do. And instead of just doing it, because God's Word has told us to do so, like I said, we do some kind of bargaining, or we ask God for some extra sign of confirmation. When we already know what his word said. Here's the, here's the thing. If, if scripture says something, if the word of God says something about how we are supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, then our job isn't to respond to it with some kind of condition or with some kind of bargaining with God. But rather we're to respond in obedience and faith. So while we look at Barak, here, and we go, okay, that's kind of silly that he didn't listen to God's direct word from the prophet. We do, we do the same thing all the time. But I will say this. I think it's wonderful, and I hope that you think it's wonderful too, that where Barak failed, and where you and I failed, Jesus, our Savior, did not. Instead, he obeyed the law perfectly without asking for any extra condition. When he was tempted, he kept scripture on his mind. He did not falter. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's in agony, praying before God because he knows that the cross is before him, he doesn't finish his prayer with God. If you send me a sign, then I'll go to the cross. No, he finishes his prayer going, not my will, but thine be done. He went in full obedience. Now all this to say, we see in this story Barak's failure, and we see Christ here as one who fit or who succeeded where Barak did not. But back to the overall narrative here. After his hesitation and his condition that Barak places on the word of God, Deborah rebukes him. So Barak doesn't end up delivering Sisera, or delivering Israel from Sisera. Rather, Deborah prophesies that Sisera will be given into the hand of a woman. <laughs> but it's interesting, as the story goes on, you would expect Deborah would be this woman, but she's not. Right? You would expect that at the beginning of the story, because Barak is like, Deborah, you need to come with me. And she says, okay, but if I come with you, Sisera will be delivered into the hand of a woman. Right? So the natural reading there would be like, okay, so Deborah's going to be the one who takes him out. But as we know, neither Barak nor Sisera, or nor Deborah, end up Delivering Israel from Sisera. So, we see the one that comes along, the woman whose hand Sisera falls into, Jael. So what about her? Is she the hero? Is she the deliverer of this story? 
before we can answer that question, we need to learn a little bit about who she is. And you might have noticed this. As I read the story earlier, verse 11 just mentions this guy out of nowhere, Heber the Kenite. Right? And it talks about how he left the clan where he was at and went and pitched his tent. And then it just goes back to the story. Right? It's just completely out of the blue. It's like a jagged edge in the story. But then after this verse, we only see Heber pop back up one more time in verse 17, where he's mentioned as the husband of Jael. Jael is his wife. Now, that gives us some information about Jael that's pretty important to this story. Jael is not an Israelite. She's not a Jew. She's a Kenite. Kenites were peoples of the land. And this is pretty significant. Because, as I mentioned, there's a lot in the story that's been up unexpected up to this point. And here we get another one. Because the one who delivers Israel from Sisera is not even a Jew. When we look at the book of Judges, you know, God's raising up these people, these Jews, these judges who go out and deliver their people. And yet here, the one who takes out the oppressor is not even of Israel. And even more unexpectedly, the reason that Sisera is comfortable entering Jael's tent, right? It's kind of strange to us as we think this military commander, he's running away from battle. And this woman on the side of the road is just like, come into my tent and I'll take care of you, right? That seems a little odd. But there's a reason Sisera went to Jael's tent. And that's because the text mentions that there's peace between Heber and, J- Heber and Jabin. Jabin is Sisera's boss, right? So the term indicates that there's this kind of formal peace treaty between the two. And even in verse 12, the text implies that Heber is the one who tips off Sisera to the fact that Barak is going out and bringing his army. So when Sisera flees to Jael's tent, he has every reason to see her as an ally. They have a peace treaty. Her husband is the one that tipped him off to this battle that he just went to and that he's now escaping from. So when he goes to her tent, he thinks all is well. He thinks he's fine. So when Jael takes him out, that's a pretty significant twist in the story. Cicero surely didn't see it coming. And it's interesting because the text never really comments on Jael's motive for any of this. It doesn't say because she was, you know, wanting to be faithful to the God of Israel. It just, you know, just describes what she did. It doesn't give any explanation for why she betrayed this peace treaty. So the whole thing is just really strange and unexpected for us. And in the tent, there's a kind of role reversal that takes place. As I mentioned, this this text is always flipping things on its head. It's flipping the conventions of the day on its head. Now, some of these details, as we're reading through in the ESV, don't come out super clearly, but I want to go through them just briefly so that you can see the irony. The author is really kind of almost painting a comedic picture here. There's a lot of irony with what happens, and I want you to see that. So in verse 20, Sisera tells Jael to stand at the opening of the tent, right? And he says, if a man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. And a better translation would be this. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man here? You say, there is not. Okay? What makes this more interesting is that in Hebrew and in a lot of other languages that aren't English, 
words have masculine and feminine forms, even verbs. So when you're speaking to a man, you use masculine forms. When you're speaking to a woman, or you're referring to a woman, you use these feminine forms. And that's not any commentary on a man's place or a woman's place in society. It's just how the grammar of the language works. But when Cicero commands J.L. to go stand at the door, he uses a masculine form rather than a feminine form. This is really strange. This doesn't happen. And it's confused certain scholars on this to the point, because it's so abnormal, that they see that as not part of the original story. They think that's a corrupt textual error. But it's when you look at the story and you look at all the reversal that's taking place, it's really an intentional thing that the author is doing. He's basically painting J.L. as the man. And if she's asked, is there a man in the tent? When Sisera is in the tent, the man, the commander, the suppressor, who's been against Israel for the last 20 years, she's to say, no, <laughs> there's no man in this tent. Okay, so if J.L.'s the man, and she's standing outside the tent, and there's no man in the tent, what does that make Sisera? There's some other imagery here. You know, it's, it's not necessarily painting Sisera as a woman. In a lot of ways, it's kind of painting him as a child, right? When he asks for water, J.L. gives him milk, okay? And there's another clue here that's pretty interesting because when he says there is no man here, it's not just saying, okay, you know, he's a child, whatever. She doesn't even go stand outside of the tent, right? Before she goes and does that, what does she do? She goes slowly and drives a tent peg through his head. So basically, there's this one commentator who said Cicero's unwittingly authorized his own destruction, becoming a nobody himself, by telling J.L. to say that there's no one in the tent. It's just this intense irony in this text. So what's the point of all this? And here it is. Here's what the author is getting at. Okay, Cicero. This mighty commander with 900 chariots of iron and this giant <coughs> army that's been oppressing Israel, he goes in and he faces this very unforeseen reversal. He becomes a weakling, a nobody. He's forcefully, violently conquered by this unexpected foe who appeared to be weak, who even appeared to be an innocent ally. The whole story is just completely unexpected. Just as it was unexpected for Deborah to lead, summon, and rebuke Barak, so it's unexpected for Jael, this foreign woman, to be the one who defeats this mighty commander who had oppressed Israel for 20 years. So as Deborah prophesied earlier, here it comes true. Barak does not kill Sisera, but the Lord sells him into the hand of a woman. But as I mentioned, even this woman is unexpected. You'd expect Deborah to be that woman, but it's not. It's J.L., it's this foreigner who knows, has no motive. And yet she takes out Israel's oppressor. So, we've gone through kind of the three main characters in the story. We have our hero candidates, kind of like a game show, you know. All right, which one? Which one is it? Who are you going to pick? Who's the hero? We have Deborah. She's the judge. She shows authority over a male military commander. And then she just disappears. She never actually fights anyone. She never delivers anyone. And then we have Barak. He goes out. He destroys a mighty army. Scripture remembers him later on as a deliverer, but he shows himself to be faithless to God when he calls him. And he never actually gets the man who's been oppressing Israel the whole time. 
And then we have JL. She's the one that actually kills the oppressor. But she has seemingly no motive. She's never called a deliverer or a judge in the text. And there's some moral questions. Even though scripture doesn't really answer those. But you know, we think about this. She brutally murdered an ally. With no motive. And it's just kind of strange. Now there are two things I should mention before we get to answering this question of who the hero is. First, this story is a really good example of why we shouldn't look at the Old Testament and simply try to get moral lessons out of it and see the people in the Old Testament as all great characters that we're supposed to emulate. <laughs> right? The author's point in this story is not to say to you, be like Deborah, be like Barak, be like Jael. That's not what he's doing. None of these characters are meant to be moral examples to us. And second... None of these characters really stand out as the hero of the story. Right? Each one has an important role to play, but each one's also dependent on the other two. Right? Were it not for Deborah summoning Barak and going with him, he would have never gone out into battle. Were it not for Barak actually going out and defeating the army, no one really would have been delivered. And were it not for Jael taking out Sisera, no one would have gone. He would have just escaped back to Jabin and more than likely come back as an oppressor again with another army. But the text does give us some clear clues as to who the real hero in the story is. If you look at verse 14, it's the key. Okay, Deborah and Barak are standing on Mount Tabor, looking out over the battlefield. And Deborah says to Barak, does not the Lord go out before you? And this brings us to the third point. The real hero in this story is not Deborah, it's not Barak, it's not Jael, but it's God himself. I mentioned this song in chapter 5 a few times, and it does some things that help us see God as the sovereign judge, hero, deliverer of Israel the whole time. It peels back the curtain so that we can see behind the scenes as to what God is doing. If you notice in chapter 4, it never really explains how Barak defeated those 900 chariots of iron. It makes this big, huge deal out of the strength of Sisera's army. And then it makes it sound like Barak just runs down with his foot soldiers and just destroys them all somehow. Right? It never actually gives us any, any indication of how he does this. But in chapter 5, there are two verses in particular that give us some hints about how this happened. In verse 4 of chapter 5, it says, Lord... When you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Then in verse 21, it says the torrent Kishon. Remember, that's the river there. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, marched on my soul with might. Okay, so the plains they were battling in had this river, the Kishon. There it was running through the plains, and in the rainy season... It normally would have made the ground a bit marshy there, right? Now, the fact that Sisera, when he sees them going out and he takes his chariots, that shows there really isn't any indication of there being rain because if Sisera goes out with chariots in a marshy ground, they're just not going to go anywhere, right? They're just going to be stuck, right? So it indicates that this isn't a rainy season normally, okay? It's dry. Sisera goes out and he expects to just wipe the floor with Barak and his army. But, 
once he goes out, the Lord sends this torrential downpour. It overflows the river. It basically immobilizes Sisera's chariots. So this is why in verse 14, when Barak and Deborah are standing on Mount Tabor, Deborah says to Barak, does not the Lord go out before you? They see this storm getting ready to come. Then in verse 15, notice who it says routed Sisera and his chariots and his army. It doesn't say that Barak is the one that did this. It says the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So the Lord sovereignly works through this storm to immobilize Sisera's chariots, to give Barak and his army the ability to take out the enemy. And there's something else interesting about this particular method that the Lord used to do this. And he sent this thunderstorm, this major downpour. And it shows the Lord's superiority over Sisera, who's a Canaanite, and over his Canaanite army. But it also shows his superiority over the Canaanite god, Baal. Okay, Israel, throughout her history, we see this time and time again. Israel is always constantly tempted to worship Baal, to build idols and altars to Baal. Just over and over again. But here, we see Baal who was the God of thunder and the God of rain. And we see that the Lord brings this mighty thunderstorm to defeat Canaan, who Baal is supposedly supposed to be watching over as their God. So he uses the exact thing that they thought, you know, Baal would hold off these things because he's the God of these things. And yet God brings this storm, shatters the Canaanite army, and shows Baal's utter powerlessness before Israel. Okay, this isn't just to say, okay, God is cooler than Baal. This is to say God is showing here. He knows this temptation Israel has. So in his defeating the Canaanites in this way, it's a warning to Israel in a way. Saying, do not go after that. Do not go after the Canaanites. Do not go after their gods. And yet we see them fail at this later as Scripture goes on. So we see God sending this storm to defeat Canaan. We see him as the hero here. And not only is the storm something that happens, but who else but the sovereign Lord could send Sisera into the hand of an ally who then goes on to murder. We see his working all throughout this story. And I want to say this too. The way that J.L. kills Sisera is pretty significant in this story. And as we read this, we're like, okay, this is kind of graphic, right? We're like, this is not, you know, this is not the, the children's story that we read before bed to our kids or in Sunday school, right? This is pretty graphic. It's pretty jarring. Even now, we think about this and we're like, man, you know, even with all the violence we have in movies, we, we think about this and we're like, this is pretty, this is pretty intense. Okay, J.L. kills Sisera by driving a tent peg through his head. That is, that is very intense. But there's, there's a reason why the author describes it this way. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, Sisera represents death for all the Israelites. He's an absolute oppressor. And yet, Jael 
the storm, everything about this story, about his death, is just unexpected. Jail's an ally. By all appearances, she appears to be weak. She's a non-threat. And yet she crushes the head of Israel's oppressor. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament a few times, you, you may know that this, this theme of crushing the head of an oppressor is not just isolated to this story. It's something that shows up a few times in the Old Testament. In fact, it shows up just a few chapters later. In Judges chapter 9, we have Abimelech. He's this kind of premature king of Israel who's kind of evil. <laughs> and he is oppressing his own people. And a woman, okay, another woman, another unexpected kind of someone who appears to be weak, throws a stone out of a window and he crushes his head. Then in 1 Samuel 17, this one's much more familiar to us. The shepherd boy David unexpectedly cuts off the head of Goliath, this oppressor, the one who was the champion of the Philistines who had been oppressing Israel. And in each of these examples, there's an oppressor. That oppressor epitomizes death for the people of Israel. And in each example, one who is seemingly weak comes and then crushes the head of the oppressor. The expectation is that the oppressor would crush the one who is weak, but that's not how it goes down. And this repeating theme is no mistake. We look back all the way to Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. There's an announcement that the Messiah will come and that he will crush the head of Satan. Stories like this, like Jael crushing the head of Sisera, the woman crushing the head of Abimelech, David, cutting off the head of Goliath. These are real stories. They really happen in Israel's history, but they're sovereignly orchestrated by God to point Israel to the one who is to come, the one who will come and ultimately crush the head of Satan, who is the ultimate oppressor, the ultimate enemy of the people of God. So these stories tell us something about the Messiah who is to come. Those who crush the head of the oppressors are seemingly weak, and they do things that you wouldn't expect. And in the same way, Christ becomes man. He comes as a baby in a manger. He's described as the lamb who is to be slain. And yet at the cross, he crushes the head of Satan. He delivers us from the oppression of sin and death. So ultimately, these things happen in Israel's history. So they would see God's sovereign deliverance. So they would see the Messiah. It's interesting, there's a detail in the story that kind of points us to this. God goes out before Barak and Deborah. He brings in this unexpected deliverer, Jael, and she crushes the head of the oppressor. And then we get this detail at the end of the story that Barak goes into Jael's tent, and there he sees Sisera dead, lying dead, okay? So you get this weird detail of Barak going and seeing this happen. But then in Hebrews 11, right, later in Scripture, this chapter is about those, this great cloud of witnesses, right? And who are they witnessing to? They're witnessing to Christ. You get this great cloud of witnesses who, lift, who witness to Christ. And it mentions Barak as one among them. Okay? So when he comes in and he sees that, that Jael has crushed the head of this oppressor, 
What Hebrews is telling us is that he saw in her Christ. He saw this coming Messiah as he stood there opening the tent, seeing Sisera the oppressor laying there dead. So now the things that these stories were pointing to have happened. Christ has come. He has delivered us from sin and death. He's fully obeyed the covenant that Israel could never obey on our behalf and on their behalf. And this is the main thing I want to get across today. Okay, if from the story you learn nothing else, if this is the only thing you get, this is the main point. Okay, because Christ has gone out before us. He's delivered us from sin and death. We ought to rest in his finished work. Okay, we see this in our story. He is the real hero. Jael crushed the oppressor. And just as she did that, so Christ has conquered sin and death on the cross. Crushed the head of Satan. He will return in judgment to defeat sin, death, Satan. Once and for all, give them the final blow as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So as a result, we don't need to look for other heroes to save us. We don't need to try to be our own hero and save ourselves. We need to look to Christ in faith. Okay, just as Israel, at the end of the story in chapter 5, it says, and the land had rest for 40 years. So just as Christ, through Jael, delivered Israel and they rested for 40 years, so we can rest in what Christ has done on the cross. The things that this story pointed to. We can rest in Christ's deliverance and in his finished work. So when we face temptation, when we face struggles with our sin, we can look to Christ because he's already defeated sin for us. When we have doubts concerning our own salvation, just as Barak had doubts that God would give him the victory over Sisera, we don't need to look to ourselves to try to do better. We don't need to look for some sign to assure us of what God has done for us. We already have Christ. We can look to him and his finished work. As Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Christ took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We can look to his work. He's already dealt the enemy a fatal blow. We do not need to worry. As Hebrews 12 says, in Christ we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So in conclusion, I'll leave you with this question. Who are you looking to in your life when things go wrong, even when things are going well? But when you're struggling with doubt, when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with assurance, who are you looking to? Are you looking to yourself, like the rock, looking at his own insecurities rather than God's promises? Or are you looking to the one who crushed the head of the oppressor? The one who has already defeated sin and death. The one whom Jael pointed to when she crushed the head of Sisera. Who went out before Deborah and Barak and brought deliverance. Let us look to Christ in faith and rest in the work that he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you 
this morning. Lord, in awe at your word. We thank you for the story that happened in Israel's history that points us to our Messiah. Lord, and we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he's done. We thank you that you dealt Satan a fatal blow on the cross, that he's defeated sin and death on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that we might honor you, that we might live lives that show gratitude for what's happened on our behalf, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.